This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast on Christmas music. One of my fascinations is how Christmas music fits into a musician's career. And today I have guitarist and singer Patrick Droney here to talk about that. Droney released an EP titled State of the Heart on Warner Brothers Records last fall, and he has an album coming out this spring. In between, he cut a version of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You for Spotify's holiday single series. I talked to Patrick about covering Mariah Carey and how that song and single fits into his career plan as he works to find an audience. Then, I'm going to talk with New Orleans originator of what she calls rap cabaret, Boyfriend. Boyfriend has been a guest a couple of times in the past, once to talk about All I Want for Christmas is You, and once to talk about The Carpenter's Merry Christmas, Darling. Today, we're going to revisit one of her favorite Christmas albums, Amy Grant's A Christmas Album. To start, though, I want to share another favorite with you. I Just Go Nuts at Christmas by Yogi Jorgensen. The novelty song was released in 1949, and I found it in my mom's metal box of 45s. I Just Go Nuts at Christmas is the kind of song that can't be done today because it features comedian Harry Stewart putting on a broad Swedish accent to sing about how crazy the holidays are. As a kid, I connected with this on the funny sounds level. But I clearly understood how bewildered by life he, speaking as a Swedish everyman, felt when facing the modern world, which naturally included women. He sings, I looked at nightgowns for my wife, those black ones trimmed in red, but I don't know her size, and so she gets the carpet sweeper instead. It was basically Catskill's domestic comedy adapted to a Swedish accent. I never think to put the song on Christmas mixes I make, partly because the comedy is so hack, partly because with so many novelty songs, once you know the novelty, the fun's kind of over, and doing other cultures' accents for laughs is at best problematic. But since I've been asking guests about their early Christmas music memories, it seemed only fair to share mine. This is I Just Go Nuts at Christmas by Yogi Jorgensen. I just go nuts at Christmas on that jolly holiday. I'll go in the red like a knucklehead, cause I'll squander all my pay. Oh, I just go nuts at Christmas, shopping sure drives me berserk. On the day before, I'll rush in a store like a poor bewildered jerk. I'll look at nightgowns for my wife, those black ones trimmed in red. But I won't know her size, and so she'll get a carpet sweeper instead. Oh, yes, go nuts at Christmas. Now to Patrick Droney. Patrick is a young Nashville-based guitarist and singer who is in the process of finding his audience and establishing himself as more than just a musician. In the fall, he released a six-song EP, State of the Heart, and his usual plan to get the word out would have been to go on tour. But 2020 and COVID made that impossible, so what next? As we talk about, he did what musicians used to do and released a Christmas song or album as a bridge between the previous release and the one that will come out in the spring. Droney was up front about cutting a Christmas song as a career move, but he also talked about why and how he covered a song as iconic as All I Want for Christmas is You. We'll start with The Wire from State of the Heart, so you can hear Droney making non-Christmas music. Then we'll pick up the conversation on 12 songs. 
Christmas is you come about. So yeah, I got I was reached out. Um, Spotify reached out uh, to do the holiday singles, which I've I've loved over the years. And um, Christmas music has always been a really special part of my life. You know, me and my dad, my dad's a huge Christmas music fan. So throughout the house growing up, it was always a special time when that would start playing over the speakers. Um, so when they asked me to to be a part of this campaign, um, it was obviously, wow, what, what song am I going to do and what can I do justice as well as what song can I flip? Can I really give my perspective to? Um, and I had noticed that over the years, nobody had done All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Um, and I knew it would be a feat because it is really one of the classic Christmas songs and, and truly what a brilliant pop song that would from a commercial standpoint and arrangement and everything. So I just decided, like, let's go for it. Let's do this. And I felt this inherent soulfulness in that song and the intention of being with the one you love. Um, and I just, coming from a soul and blues background growing up, I thought, let's flip this into halftime and, and really put some soul into it. So that's how it started. So walk me through the process, because hers is such a different version from yours. Tell me about how you went through the process of making it into a song that made sense for you. Of course. Yeah. So it really started with just getting reacquainted with the song as a fan and then analyzing it from an arrangement standpoint. It was actually like super overwhelming because it really is a pretty complicated song and the, the chord progression and uh, it was pretty, pretty masterfully done. So I just kind of sat in my studio with my buddy, John Stark, who co-produced it with me. And we just started playing it and singing it and, and just getting used to to what that felt like in, in my voice. And um, and then what happened was I pulled up a halftime groove and that's when I really started leaning into this, okay, let's treat this as a soul song. How do, how do, you, how do you flip that on its head? And then it really started to unfold and I wanted to build an atmosphere around it that felt more intimate, you know? And, and yeah, so from there, it, it, it kind of it happened a little easier once I sorted out that approach um and then from a vocal standpoint it was one of the more pressure cookers that i've been in because you know you're you're going with mariah who's one of the greatest singers of all time and i thought okay, okay i gotta really go for it so um really took my time i mean we got a we got a cabin in the middle of tennessee and just shut away for a week you know what i mean and we just really put our heads down and did this um and a big part of this was finding little kind of themes like with the guitar um and then the saxophone towards the end really came together and brought it that that kind of christmas spirit um but there were there was a, a handful of elements that really it, it all had to happen the way it did for this song to come together um and then i had to throw a guitar solo in there because that's just what i do right <laughs> 
I want to back up just a little bit. So when you first started playing it, were you, it was like you and your guitar, were you playing it like the very first time just to learn the song? Were you playing it more or less at her speed or more or less just kind of with, you know, kind of as it was before it to start to figure out once I know what it is, then yeah. I can figure out what I can turn it into? I started there. I started like at ground zero, her tempo, her arrangement. Um, and I just recognized that she already did that and she did it perfectly. And, and whatever I do has to, you know, some of my favorite songs uh, cover wise is like when the artist transforms it and, you know, and it becomes something new. And I felt like, like just at, at the start, yeah, I definitely just started at her tempo and, and, and even built a template in, in my session as just to kind of like recreate her version. And pretty quickly I realized like, that's no place for me. She's, she's done that brilliantly and also just like what a i would need like six months <laughs> does gender switching the song change anything or does it did it give you any anything you had to stop and think over in the process yeah it's a good question um i i, I didn't stumble on that at all um i think there is a, a real tenderness in her in the in the lyrics and the way the story unravels and i think for a male to sing that um and to lean into that is is super important and um I think that it translated so well between, you know, male to female vocals. And I think maybe that's a really cool thing for listeners to hear it in a different perspective, not just from an arranger standpoint, from a, from a male singing it. Um, no, I mean, the only, the only thing that I had to do was like make sure I could sing these super high parts. <laughs> <laughs> did you have to find your own key for it or are you in her key? I did have to find my own key for it. Yeah. And, and really make moments out of it, but I, I let myself go places. Um, I remember at one juncture right before the solo, you know, um, please bring my baby to me, you know, that, that, that part right before it breaks. I'm like, all right, let's go for it. And I just, it was like three in the morning, one random night and my buddy John was like, you better do this, man. And I, you know, we, we hit it. We hit a note that sufficed for me, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question regarding gender. I don't really think about that, but but definitely a compelling thought. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, I can't, as I just sort of quickly mental inventory the lyric, I can't hear of anything in there that would, would jump. But at the same time, you know, because the song is first off Mariah and because it's, you know, kind of it's blueprint comes off the Phil Spector Christmas album and girl, the crystals and the Ronettes. And so, it had, you know, sort of its DNA is young women singing yeah. um, and kind of combining Christmas and love. For um, sure. And so, like, even, like, I went back and listened to uh, the Crystal's, uh, Crystal's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And even though Santa Claus is Coming to Town is, I mean, it's, it's a song first for kids, 
that the way, I think it's Lala Brooks on lead vocal, but the way the lead vocal sings, it's like every other line could be like, and Santa thinks you should kiss me. It is so right. clear she's singing about, you know, she, she, you know, she's singing about romance, even when she's singing about how Santa Claus is coming to town. And she's not telling kids they better, they better not pout and they better not cry. She's telling her boyfriend to tighten up. And, right. uh, and so, you know, that's so perf, you know, so it was, so anyway, so I always find like a, a female point of view is so strongly hardwired into that, that, you know, having a, you know, having a male sing it as a soul song on one hand, it works perfectly, but because it comes with such, such sort of baggage, I have to ask, you know, if you think about that at all. For sure. No, that's, that's a great perspective. And, and I mean, that's a, the Phil Spector, the wall of sound like that they really achieved. It was the whole thing was, uh, it was a really great experience as a musician and as a songwriter and producer to live within this, this recording. And it was very humbling. I'll put it that way. You know what I mean? You really have to let go of all of your own um, ego with this kind of thing and serve the song, especially being something that is so important to people. I mean, people love, these are, these are songs that are surrounding moments uh, that, people remember forever so there's a lot of responsibility with this kind of thing and i took it very seriously so i was excited to sit down with you because i know you understand that you know yeah you know yeah. one of the things i've been I, I kind of hit on this year i hadn't really thought about it before but you think about like christmas songs by you know by andy williams and by you know some of the you know the classics like you know happy holidays by peggy lee and you realize Peggy Lee a little bit different, but you realize like Andy Williams had a perfectly full musical career of which a very small part was Christmas music. And the only part people remember is, you know, is the happiest time of the year. Right. And, uh, and thinking now about, you know, thinking about someone like Mariah and in 30 years, could all I want for Christmas be the Mariah song people remember and that people end up, remembering her as a uh as a christmas song and not sure. as a pop artist who did as much music as she's done yeah it's a, it's a legacy thing for sure and i think you know things that's that, that span the test of time are most often connected to to bigger ideas and bigger moments and traditions and uh i think i think you could be spot on down the line so you know for me to to have a christmas song in my catalog now you know, I, I, we had talked about that. This is, it's a super important juncture in my career because I know that this is something that will repeat every single year and hopefully, you know, last just, just as much. And I, you know, this has also inspired me next year to, to dive in again. And I'd, I'd love to, to put out maybe a Christmas EP or, or write an original Christmas song. And, you know, then those things are, that's a whole different ball game too. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a compelling, um, thought for legacy for sure now you got into uh, this is part of the spotify single series i have to imagine that a lot of people who are going to hear these are going to be hearing you for the first time sure did you think about what you wanted to make sure you showed people if this was going to be their introduction to you and and sort of what was important that people hear about you and sort of what insight does this give them into your music so that going forward, they'll be looking for more from uh, more from you. 
Absolutely. Yes. The answer is yes. Um, It's such a platform. And I I intrinsically understood that most people who would be hearing this would be new listeners to to me and my voice and my perspective as an artist. So it was, it was crucial that whatever we did was a true artistic statement from, from my point of view, uh, honoring, honoring the song, of course. Um, However, transforming it into, into the Patrick Droney artistic perspective. So, you know, with that said, it was, it was the soul soulfulness, um, you know, and for me, the genre, I, I'd like to kind of define what I'm trying to do is new, is new classic. It's, it's pop music that harkens back to a familiar time, but pushes the boundary. So, you know, as a guitar player, um, yeah, it was really important that I make a moment out of, out of that, at, that solo. And, um, it was important that I had a musicality, uh, because, you know, I'm trying to bring a little bit more sophistication into pop arrangement and, um, and production in today's day and age. So, you know, I think if you listen to my records from, from, you know, my compositions, uh, and productions, you'll see this, this really fits just, just right. I mean, I'm, I'm just as excited about this as just a, a recording as I am about a Christmas song. I'm like, I just love having this in my catalog. Cause I think it's just a, I would put this on an album. Right because it, it fits in, in my spectrum spectrum. So I think that's been the most exciting thing already. I mean, it's, uh, I've had so much great feedback from, from new listeners, uh, who have, have taken, you know, a liking to the song and have gone into my catalog and now are fans. So it's a wonderful thing. I was about to ask. So have you had people, you've had people who are then reaching out to you, uh, in social media because they found it. Oh yeah. So many. I mean, it's, it's only been out for a short period of time, but it, I mean, it's pretty overwhelming the amount of feedback already. Um, and you know, people who, you know, this is like, it came out before Thanksgiving, which is always kind of like maybe taboo, you know, nobody wants to hear Christmas songs before Thanksgiving, but like, I'm, I'm getting some of the funniest messages of people being like, I broke my rule. I'm now a pre Thanksgiving Christmas uh, listener. Uh, due to that. Uh, uh, you know, so, uh, it's been really sweet. And, um, there's this kind of inherent, hope and cheer about the holidays and and, you know there's also a sadness around them too especially this year there's a lot of grief and i think just to offer something right now to people for them to feel good um and feel like they're with family even if they're far apart it's just been a really great thing and i'm excited to see that unfold over the next month so in the historically you know we go back to andy williams like at that time so often Christmas songs were recorded to basically be in the marketplace as a kind of a bridge between something that came out in the summer or fall and something that was going to come out then in either later in winter, uh, the next year or spring. And it sounds like that's kind of happening for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. So completely you want to talk about the projects on either side that book ended for sure yeah this is this actually has been a really great bridge as far as timing goes between my projects we you know we put out um the state of the heart ep in october uh which is six songs um which is the first installment of state of the heart my first full-length album which will be out in the spring um so you know it's been a really cool connector and um a way to keep you know the conversation going and, and the music flowing because Right now, I'm just, I'm a studio rat at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm so head down uh, build, building this album. But, um, 
you know, the first six songs I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and we worked really hard on them. And it's been interesting to put them out in this season of, of time, this era. Um, having not been able to be on the road, I'm a, I'm a kind of a live guy. It's my thing. So to flip the perspective and be able to offer records for people. And, and again, it goes back to responsibility as, as an artist and a songwriter and storyteller. Um, you know, it's my responsibility to put out music right now and give people something to have a conversation about, to feel connected to. Um, and I think having the Christmas song be a little bit of a, in between the sandwich is a beautiful thing. So yeah, it's exciting. You know, normally, the, you know, the cycle is that you put something out, then you get out and tour it. And especially as a young artist, and it's your EP that's sort of introducing you to the world, and that normally you'd get out and you'd, you know, play smaller rooms and start winning audiences, and you didn't get that opportunity. Um, so you kind of put it out there and let it, and I, I don't know if it fends for itself or, you know, sort of it finds whatever it finds, but how did you process that, putting a record out and then having not being able to follow it? Yeah, it's been it's been really an interesting and humbling experience. Um, I started out as a young gunsling guitar player, blues kid. So I was out on the road since I was 12, you know, with a lot of my heroes in the blues world. And, and I've really lived on the road my whole life. Um, and, we, you know, I put out a self-titled EP independently in 2018, and I got to tour quite a bit. Um for like those two years. Um, but it, there was this really big buildup for the, for this season of, of this new music with, you know, with, uh, with Warner and just to really move through this really big excitement and to have that be not a part of, of the spectrum in which like I'm living was a really tough pill to swallow because I'm, I mean, we got pulled off the road mid tour when the pandemic hit. So it was like, we were just, about to go dive in for the next couple of years is like just hardcore. Um, so I really just I had to flip my perspective. I had to think about, you know, how can I fulfill that, that need to play without being able to go play for people. So, you know, you find different ways we did, we did a live streamed EP release show, which was really fun. And, um, you know, just do the best you can, but it just becomes about, okay, it's not about me. I think shows can be really self-serving. It's like, that's something that we all just, selfishly love to be on stage with with my buddies and have that communication but it's just you got to find that somewhere else and look look down the line and know this is for the best but um but yeah definitely a, a different experience go around yeah. yeah you know one of the things i think gets sort of overlooked in the com conversation about the lives of musicians in 2020 you know we think about musicians getting paid i'm here in new orleans and obviously we have, you know, so many musicians whose lives, livelihoods were primarily made through playing live. Uh, I mean, New Orleans has a lot of musicians for whom albums really exist as souvenirs far more than they exist as artistic statements. And so, you know, gigs are, you know, gigs are your money. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the things I think gets lost when you keep focusing on that is, of course, you know, as a musician that's just sort of what, you know, playing is just what you do. Uh, and it's, it's sort of, it seems like more, you know, not being able to go and play live feels like more of an existential hit than just a oh, financial yeah. hit. Completely existential. It, it's an identity issue. Uh, it's, you know, it's part of the fabric of being a, an artist and musician is that conversation. And it's, it, you take it for such granted, you know, and we've all realized that it's just how important that's been. And, 
and you're right. It has been, I've been practicing like mindfulness and mental health and then really trying to fill that gap because for us, it really is about that. It's about like the well-being and the being well-rounded as a creative. Um, so I think you hit the nail on the head and, you know, but again, I, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a songwriter, I'm a producer. I have other outlets to fulfill that. But, you know, some of my friends who are just part of the crew, tour managers, lighting director, you know, these, these people have families and they have uh, so much at stake and it's all surrounded by touring. So, you know, my heart goes out to them and, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of all of the people I know and I don't know who are being resilient and finding other ways to make this work for now. Um, but I, I do feel grateful to be able to do these other things as well. But yeah. One of my favorite people to talk to about Christmas music is Boyfriend. She has Christmas music of her own, including co-writing and co-production credits on both the Big Frida's Christmas EPs, A Very Big Frida Christmas and Big Frida's Smoke and Santa Christmas. When she told me she wanted to talk about Amy Grant's A Christmas Album from 1983, I was game. Grant is someone I haven't paid much attention to in the pop or Christmas music world, and when the album was released, I wasn't interested since I trust Boyfriend's taste and was curious about how Amy Grant influenced her music, I said, let's do it. We'll start with a song by Boyfriend released in 2020, Blind Eye. And then we'll come back on the other side with me, Boyfriend, and Amy Grant's first Christmas album. Today you brought Amy Grant's 1983 Christmas album titled A Christmas Album. It is the first of Grant's uh, three Christmas albums, and at this point, she was a Christian singer who was just starting to look at broadening her audience beyond the Christmas music market. It was her seventh album, uh, but it was three years before Next Time I Fall, her chart-topping duet with Peter Cetera, and eight years from Baby Baby, her first uh, solo pop number one. Why did you bring Amy Grant a Christmas album? <laughs> Where to begin? There are there's some slices of culture of media that are I think like part of my DNA and this album is is one of those. Um for one thing, 
Tennessee Christmas is the first track and I'm from Tennessee. And so we had our own unique made for us Christmas song. And I think a lot of people in Tennessee have a relationship with this song. Um, even though you might not hear it on like Christmas radio outside of the area. And so that's cool because Nashville specifically is a place of cultural export. So like the culture that's ours, it's in our best interest to continuously export it in order to have a thriving tourism economy and country music, blah, 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 and have an international association with it. But this felt like it was just for us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And one of the verses is about uh, being out in the snow and my sister ended up moving to Utah and one of the verses is about being in LA and I moved to LA. And so which came first, the song or us doing that, the song. So maybe we literally lived out our life path because of Tennessee Christmas. Um, and it's, uh, it's core thing is talking about how, well, at least at the beginning, it doesn't really snow there. Like it's cold, but you don't get that beautiful white rolling hills payoff, but Christmas Eve 2020, it snowed in Nashville. It was wonderful. It was gone by the morning, but the whole top of the car and the whole driveway was white. And it was like, uh, you know, my heart grew three sizes that day. It was Uh, uh, this uh, one moment of 2020 that felt um, like a good, like a heartwarming movie instead of a, (laughs) instead of a horror movie or a uh, black comedy. This idea that Tennessee, that Tennessee uh, Christmas, is particularly particularly speaks to you because, of course, we live in New Orleans, and in every five minutes, somebody is writing a song about New Orleans. Um, is it that? And so, I was trying to do a quick spin in my head. Are there not that many songs sort of celebrating Tennessee? It's hmm. a good question. I think it's thrown in 
the way you would reference whiskey or a pair of boots. I, you know, I mean, Dolly Parton being the exception because with Dolly, it's a, a real emotional tie. And the same with Amy. I mean, she's, she's a Nashville girl. Um, <laughs> she's a Nashville gal like me. Um, but I think, you know, especially when you're a kid, like, Hey, I live in Tennessee. Like the concept of where you're located on the earth, like you don't instantly know that it like kind of has to unfold. I, I remember when I was working with kids in new Orleans, we took a field trip. It was maybe like 20 minutes away. And they were asking me, are we still in new Orleans? Right. You know, are we like, cause they're like six years old. Like you're, you don't, you're situating yourself in your time and your place. And so to hear Tennessee in a song and know, Hey, that's where I live. It was like this great sense of pride and it was super fun. Um, but you know, that's just the first track. It goes, this CD <laughs> is like pretty relentless. I'm so glad I got to introduce you to it because it's, um, who it's, it's a piece of work. I have to say it, I was, I was, I was so glad you did because on my own, I don't know that I ever would have got there. Um, I mean, in in '83, this is definitely not emotionally or you know mentally or musically where I was, and and I have to say it, and even at this, you know, I think about you know Christian music at this point, and and I was and I wasn't very interested, largely not just because, not because of the subject matter. But because I so often found that the Christian music version of popular music so often sounded like an argument that you don't really need that thing that you really like. You know, like you know, like Christian metal never had the crunch that made metal exciting. And you know, Christian rock rarely had the sleaze that made rock interesting. And Christian hip hop would be hip hop minus everything that makes hip hop interesting, and and there's an element of that in this. There's no question. There's like uh, that sort of like whether it's just it, I want to say Sonics, but this was recorded at some really expensive studios and some really you know fancy studios, and and they don't scrimp on her voice. So it's not that they that um, that this is cheap. But I always found there to to be at this time a sort of a sonic dimension that always kind of kept me back from it. Um, listening to it now, I I won't choose this again. So so it's not like I, I not like you you turned me around on it. But I found I was far more interested in it uh, and interested in the proposition of Amy Grant than I used to be. So in that respect, I'm really I am glad glad that we we agreed to do this. And that you brought this to me. So now, so you'll obviously, so the Tennessee part, that's, that's, that's important to you. What else spoke to you on this album? Um, well, I have to say, because you kept referring to Christian music, it's never occurred to me to think of this album in terms of Christian music. Um, which is like a whole other... <laughs> Santa bag full of toys right. <laughs> to discuss yeah. of, well, of the interplay between, you know, let me stop it. you then. 
how did this come to you? If you because because at this point she was she was clearly identified as a as a Christian artist. So if she didn't, how did she come to you? You know, or how you know, how did you understand her at that time? Christmas. Oh. And there is, to me, a suspension of not disbelief. What? The, how to finish the sentence? Uh, suspension of belief, maybe that Christmas time is directly tied with Christianity for me. And part of that is because the church that I grew up in had this great idea that if you celebrated Christmas as Christ's birth, it was sacrilegious because we don't actually know the date that he was born on. And so Christmas had to be a secular holiday and we were not allowed to have nativity scenes. You couldn't have like, so, (laughs) which I mean, that's like a whole crazy mind puzzle. Um, And yet here are these songs that are worship songs. I mean, I don't, I, I, I see how that's a totally fair way to think of them. Um, but they came to me as Christmas songs, not as, as Christian songs. Right. Um, and, you know, I have since become not a Christian and even still listening to them, I'm able to be in this wonderful, nostalgic joy Christmas place that isn't the same as Christian space. Even though the words are literally, you know, like savior, save us, exalted one, yada, yada, yada. Um, I I think some of it's that like you have a song talking about this baby saving the earth right next to a song about Santa Claus. And so you're under the umbrella of, of myth-making. And in a way, it's like a more honest reckoning with belief because a belief doesn't have grounding. If you have grounding for something, you know it. If you believe something, that's, that's like coming from something else. And to take it one step further, faith is the acknowledgement that you don't have grounding. But... Belief is that middle space to me between faith and knowing. And belief is one of the great buzzwords of Christmas, I think. You know, you see stockings with believe on it. They're talking about Santa. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about magic. I think they're really just talking about the concept of um, suspending your disbelief. Go back to that phrase. And there's something about that that's like really... um, childlike and vulnerable and sweet that even though I have major issues with the actual literal messages of some of the songs on this album, I don't care. I sing along and I have tears in my eyes because, uh, it's all just part of the season, you know?
Praise to God whose love was shown. Jesus left his rightful throne. Creation praised him, God incarnate. Come, come to Bethlehem. Still a higher call had he. That reminds me of a quote, and I'm not going to be able to find it quickly, but by a writer, a Penny Restat, who wrote a great book, uh, Christmas in America. And one thing she basically says is that. Uh, Santa is training wheels for Christianity and that Santa teaches children to believe without, uh, to, you know, to believe without evidence or to believe on, on scant evidence. Even manufactured evidence. Exactly right. Yes. And uh, so, no, so I'm right with you on that. I think that's really interesting. So the one I have to ask you about is Emmanuel. I hope that you would bring up Emmanuel. It's my favorite one. Wow, <laughs> I was—I I mean, that was—that was the hit. Uh, to the extent that uh, that was, I think that when my memory serves, that that topped Christian char- uh, pop charts at that time for the song. And I—I I should actually find my note here that when I listening to it, that for me this was part prog rock, part pop, and part soundtrack to the training montage for an '80s sports movie. That I just hear, like I could just see, like Kurt Thomas working out on the rings. In the this is like the training in Jim Cotta before he goes to like turn gymnastics into a fighting uh, into a fighting stance or something. It is for me utterly baffling. Uh, I'm fascinated. I'm really glad I've listened to it, uh, but I, I couldn't. I was had no idea how to go into this. So tell me about what your take on uh, Emmanuel. Well, you're, you hit the nail on the head with the training montage. <laughs> Me and my sister would take a running start from all the way across the room and flip onto the couch. Uh, and we uh, uh, it where we timed it right when that dun dun wonderful counts it. Like if you, you had to land on the dun okay. dun, or else you had to do it over, rewind it, and do it again. that it is um i mean this word's never occurred to me for this song but i think it's accurate to call it campy um yes. and it's hard to for me to not really love camp yeah <laughs> and uh i like that it's it's a worship song that is like do you want to lift some weights <laughs> instead of instead of a worship song that's like you know sit down and maybe if you're moved to raise your hands and close your eyes. Um, 
because I think, and, and when I'm, I should give it the disclaimer that when I'm talking about Christianity, I am talking about white Christianity or the Christianity of the oppressor versus the Christianity of the oppressed, which is completely different to me. Um, and like liberation theology and the Christianity and Catholicism of South America and of black Americans is completely different territory. That's like a whole other conversation. And I think it's like awesome and great, <laughs> but the Christianity that I uh, was raised in and that most white people have access to is about restraint. And when you do let go and worship, it's kind of out of a sense of obligation and duty and not fun. And it doesn't seem like catharsis is ever really a goal, much less ever achieved. Whereas the song Emmanuel, which is so of the moment, it's so 1983 and it just feels like it's um, like throwing the chains off and being like, we fucking believe this shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I'm there for that. I, I like that they doubled down. And, you know, I honestly, this is so embarrassing. I have chill bones right now <laughs> thinking about the song because while I do not believe that there is literally a person that died so that I can never die. I can sing the words of that song and feel a sense of redemption, salvation, gratitude, because at the end of the day, it, I think it taps into the thing that all religions are trying to tap into, which is that appreciation of source, whatever that source might be. And the, um, yeah, the gratitude of it, the wonder at it, and the urge to return to it. Like, all of that to me is in that song. <laughs> uh, uh. Um, Lord of life, Lord of all. Uh, that lyric's, you know, a little hard. Wonderful counselor. Okay, that's cool to think uh, that there's a guiding light. There's there's maybe something, maybe you are the wonderful counselor. Maybe it's inside of you. <laughs> you know, like, there's there's ways that you can grab onto certain parts of it and find the, the truth. Even wonderful counselor for me. Yeah. It's like, because because I can't hear counselor without here thinking camp counselor or guidance counselor, <laughs> neither of which are ones that like, that's what I'm going to sing to. So here's the other thing I find really odd about that and really fascinating is that everything else in this record or most everything else in this record makes sense to me. I could imagine if I were Amy Grant or if I was Mark Chapman who was writing with her if I was sort of team Grant, I would recognize this is all constructing someone who is going to be, you know, not only selling a lot of records, but is going to be someone who could even sell beyond uh, the Christian market. And then you get this utterly wacky, you know, pop song and vaguely, you know, not vaguely electronic, really electronic. And everything about it's like, who is that person? That just seems like a whole different person. It's like her evil twin stepped in to sing a song. <laughs> and I was going to, and I was just about to say, what is that? Except then there's another two or three of these sort of weird electronic, sort of vaguely prog moments what that show up in it as well. Yeah, there's other instrumentals yeah. that are also like, how did that get here? And, um, and so, oh, yes, it sort of makes sense. But I still was like, how how odd. So you you're a fan of these instrumental sections. Oh yes, I love them. Um, 
you know, like Mannheim Steamroller. Yeah. It, it's like that, except not a whole album of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like these little horn parts and, um, you know, it, I am getting to know this album as a kid. So imagine like running around your living room with that music as your soundtrack. Like it's a great soundtrack for creativity and the Christmas tree is up. And like, it's the fact that the sounds have that like eighties synthy quality to it, I think actually really helps because if it were like a live orchestra, I don't think it would have been playful for me. Right. And it would have been like, Oh, this sits next to Beethoven. Now this is serious. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that they weren't being serious. You know, that's what it sounded like in the eighties. <laughs> Thanks to Boyfriend and Patrick Droney for the time and the talk. If you missed my previous conversations with Boyfriend, you can find links to them in the show notes. If you want to let me know what you thought, you can either reach me at alex at myspiltmilk.com. There's a contact uh, there's a contact link on the website, 12songsofchristmas.com. And of course, you can find me at 12 Songs of Christmas on Facebook. Thanks, as always, to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you don't yet subscribe to 12 Songs, I hope you'll subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Google+. And if you listen on Apple, please leave the show a five-star review. That helps others find out about 12 Songs. We'll finish with one more from Amy Grant's A Christmas Album. This is her version of Sleigh Ride. Talk to you next week. Lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you.